Well, I can remember many years ago being on vacation. It was in the Outer Banks. You know, we got one of those giant houses with all of our friends, the ones that are on stilts, you know, and you pile like 20 of your friends into this house. And we were right on the water. And one day we learned there was a storm that was at sea. And I woke up the next morning and the waves were just absolutely colossal. And so 20-something-year-old me thought, what a great idea. Now is my chance to boogie board on these sick waves. So of course I grabbed my Walmart, you know, $17 boogie board and headed into the waves. I seem to remember Melanie saying something like, this is a bad idea. But I kept going to the waves and you can guess what happened. I was tossed around like a sock in a dryer. I was smashed. I was absolutely pummeled. I had sand up my nose. I had sand in other places. It was, I was like a rag doll. I had no chance to even recover. If that's ever happened to you where you've gotten knocked down by a wave or several waves, you're completely powerless. You're just kind of waiting for it all to stop and then you can kind of surface once again. I did it and then the only logical thing possible to do after that was to do it again. So I tried again. I had the same results just in case you're wondering. I may have done it one or two more times, but after that I quickly gave up. You guys ever have that moment, though, in our spiritual lives where either our sin or someone else's sin just absolutely pummels us, just buries us? You just feel crushed by the weight of sin or by someone else's sin. Before you know it, you're, you're face down in the sand with the consequences of your sin. They've just come crashing down all around you. David has experienced that, and David is going to tell us all about that in Psalm 38. We are marching through some of the Psalms in our summer series in the Psalms. Last week, we're at, in Psalm 37, a long psalm of both conviction and encouragement. Great news, this is a shorter psalm, but it's got double the conviction. Conviction because we're all prone to the consequences of sin. As much as we may not like to, we need to have a long, hard look every once in a while in the face of sin and its effects. And that let, let that then, church, drive us to the Savior. Let's refresh our memory from what Piero just read. Just look at the first ten verses with me again. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has also gone out from me. We can see that, that David is feeling immediately these incredible consequences of sin. In, in our superscript, it says that a psalm of David for the memorial offering. CSB has a Psalm of David 
for, to bring remembrance. Or if the NET translation you're looking at, it says a Psalm of David written to get God's attention. We put all these things together, we can kind of surmise that David is getting ready to bring a sacrifice to the Lord. But David has also been crushed by the consequences of his sin. We don't know the exact occasion of the sin. It could be Bathsheba. It could be some other sin. We're not sure exactly what it is. So why does God need to remember? What does God need to remember? Again, he seems to be bringing God a sacrifice. And he's asking God to remember who God is and who he is. Perhaps David is preparing to go before the perfect holy God with a sin offering. And he's wanting God to remember his mercy. David says in, in verse 1, he says, Lord, please don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Don't punish me. We have two words there for, for anger. We have anger and we have wrath. God is angry. Apparently, he's very angry with David about something. Verse 2 tells us that God is so angry that he's fired arrows at David and they're a direct hit, not, not real arrows, metaphorical arrows that have hit him and wounded him, but the effects are very destructive. God's hand is heavy upon David in judgment. When we think about this, one commentator noted that arrows, weapons of war, how many times has David led troops into battle as God's nation then attacking God's enemies? But as it were now, God's arrows are turned back and firing upon his own king. This is spiritual pain that David is in. The relationship between God and David, the king and his people is in trouble. Fellowship is interrupted. There are spiritual consequences he's walking through. But not only spiritually, the text tells us physically as well. Verse 3 says there's no soundness to his flesh. It means he's weak. He's not whole. He tells us why. Because of God's indignation. And yet we have a third word for anger. We have anger. We have wrath. We have God's indignation. God is very, very angry indeed. David says that there's no health in his bones. And verse 3 finally tells us why. He says, because of my sin. He says, his iniquities are so large, he's drowning in them. Like a wave that has crashed over him and thrown him on the beach. His burden is too heavy for him to bear. Verse 5 tells us that his wounds stink and fester, a graphic picture of the progressive corrosion of sin. He's bowed down with the weight and the burden as he goes around. David is depressed. Perhaps you can even see that when some people are depressed. Their shoulders are hunched. Their posture is bent over. He's consumed with anxiety. He says his sides are burning. This is emotional pain. He is weak, verse 8 says. He is feeble. He is crushed because of the conviction and the tumult. Verse 9 says he has one desire. He says, all my desire is before you, God. He's got one thing. This is it. Make the pain stop. Please help. Verse 10 tells us his heart pounds with anxiety. He says there's no light. He can see no way out. And so here's the point for our first section. Unresolved sin affects us spiritually, 
emotionally, and physically. Unresolved sin affects us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And David is affected spiritually. God is angry with him because of his sin. And his hand of discipline, his conviction is heavy on him. He's affected physically. He's weak. He's literally hunched over. He isn't healthy. And David is affected emotionally. He's overwhelmed. He's depressed. He's consumed with anxiety. His heart is in chaos. He can't see his way out. This psalm is actually one of seven penitential psalms. You might famously think of, of Psalm 51, where it was in the case of Bathsheba. I think I put it in your bulletins, but Psalm 51, 1 and 2, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And Psalm 32 is another penitential psalm. Verses 3 and 4, we read this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer in July in Vernon. That kind of heat. The exhausting kind of heat that wears us out. Anyone who's ever been under God's heavy hand of conviction for sin knows what this feels like. In church, this is a picture of the devastating effects of sin. We do have to express some, some caution here, right? Sometimes we look at a passage like this and we say, well, then we need to draw a thick black line that goes with every sin then must mean a physical consequence. Like, you have cancer because you sinned, or you have this because of this. That's not what this is saying. We can't always draw a one-to-one -one correlation with someone's sin and someone's either physical sickness or emotional pain or spiritual pain, right? But what do we see? We surely see that God can do that. We surely see that unconfessed, unresolved sin will have effects on us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But it's not that God is punishing us. If we've sinned and we get sick, it's not that God is punishing us. That's a real important distinction for Christians to remember. Why can't God punish his children? Because all the punishment's already doled out on Jesus Christ. There is no more punishment left. There is no wrath left. It was poured out on the cross. Jesus said it is finished. He drank the cup of God's wrath completely. So then what is God doing? God's disciplining us. God's disciplining us because he loves us, because he wants us to change, because he doesn't want us stuck in sin. Just like parents, we discipline our children because we love them. Because if we see them going off the course, it wouldn't be loving to let them just keep wandering off. We discipline them for our good, just like God disciplines us for our good. But that not, that's not always pleasant, is it? God is free to use any and all things to get our attention and to shake us out of our distracted blindness. God is free to use the spiritual pain, the emotional pain, the physical pain of sin to convict us, to sanctify us, to cause us to grow and change more into his image. And I would imagine in the way that the Holy Spirit works, there's at least one person sitting in this room right now that is under the conviction of sin or under the conviction of someone else's sin. 
that they have done. That they, are, they, are, they read this psalm this morning, and as heavy as it is, they say, that's exactly where I'm at, right there. If you are here today and you're getting crushed by the conviction of your sin or the effects of someone else's sin, first of all, thank you. Because here's how it works, right? When we feel the conviction for sin, where's the last place we want to go? Anywhere near God, right? If we were out last night and we blew it, we got drunk or we sinned sexually or we did something else stupid or we had a raging argument with our spouse this morning, the last place you want to go is church, isn't it? That's the way it works. And so if you're under that conviction for sin this morning, thank you for coming. Thank you for hearing. And I'm sure you're rolling your eyes right now going, really, God, this is what I have to listen to? This is the way the Holy Spirit works. That's why we, that's why we go through uh, books of the Bible like we do, and we let the Holy Spirit do its work and let it fall where it may. God is holy, church, and we are not. And when in these moments with sin that David's having right now, we understand that so clearly. That God is holy, and we are not. And we feel God's hand of discipline and judgment for sin. And David makes that crystal clear in this psalm. And as Christians, God brings the conviction and the effects of sin to get our attention. Like a flashing red spiritual siren that says, deal with this. You've got to deal with this. And nothing gets our attention more than pain. But God doesn't stop there. God not only uses our spiritual, emotional, and physical pain, God uses our friends and our enemies as well. Look at verse 11. David says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I've become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, Lord, do I wait. It is for you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity and I'm sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. David turns his attention to his friends and to his enemies. Or actually the fact that his friends have turned away from him and his enemies have suddenly taken notice of where David is. His friends and his companions have have put some distance in their relationship. Even his family has gone distance. But his enemies... They got plans. His enemies now see him defeated. It gets their attention. He is down. He is weak. Now is their chance. And they set their traps. They spread rumors. They say he's done. This is it. He's not going to recover from this. Yet David doesn't hear. David doesn't respond. Our text says that he was like a, a mute man. He couldn't speak or he couldn't hear. There could be a few reasons why he's not speaking or not hearing. He could be emotionally paralyzed. If we're feeling the extent of conviction for sin that David is feeling, maybe you've been there, you just tend to feel emotionally paralyzed. You don't even know what to do. 
You don't know which way to turn. You don't know what to say in response. You don't know who to listen to. David could be just emotionally paralyzed under the weight of his sin, consumed with depression or grief or anxiety. Maybe he's just isolating himself. Many of us, that's our number one defense mechanism. When it's time for conviction, that's it. We're going to hightail it. We're going to go turtle. Everything's going to come in, and we're going to be in our house, and nobody's going to come find us. Maybe he's just isolating himself. Maybe he's just resolved that this is the will of God. Maybe he's just said, hey, that I sinned. I deserve this. Whatever God's going to bring me, I'm just going to take it. Now, what am I going to say? How am I going to defend myself? But he has these moments of clarity. If, you, if you've ever spent any time in the Psalms, you know that David has moments of clarity. Even in these lament Psalms like are happening right now, he's down in the dumps, but then he just pops back up to the surface every once in a while. And like he has, even within the Psalm itself, he has these moments of clarity. And he has two in this Psalm. In, psalm, in, in verse 15, he says, but, but for you, Lord, I wait. It's for you, O Lord, my God who will answer. He's consumed with grief, with anxiety, with depression. He's overwhelmed and he has this moment of light and he says, but you, God, but for you, God, I'm going to wait. He has another one in verse 18. He says, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm not hiding this, God. I, I expose, I, I agree with you. What it was with, was sin. I repent and I turn from it. And in so doing, I'm looking for you to heal me, to restore me. But he says that where? In the effects of sin. Has God changed any of his circumstances yet? Not a one. But we see David, what? Fighting for this biblical perspective of who God is in the midst of this sin. His family, his friends, are distant, his enemies are growing closer. In verse 19, he tells us his foes are vigorous, they're numerous. He's being hated for stuff he didn't even do. He says, I'm doing good in the midst of this. Yeah, I sinned, but now I'm not. Now I'm trying to do good, and they're cursing me for doing good. And he's giving back evil. He's being mocked for his goodness, even in the midst of this. And so I'll say it this way. Unresolved sin pushes our friends away and our enemies closer. Unresolved sin pushes our friends away, but it pushes our enemies closer. Again, this is one of those texts that we can relate to a little bit too well. When we're going off the path, we can do a great job of isolating ourselves, can't we? We don't want to be found if we're going off the path. That's why usually the first thing to go, it's one of the first pastoral things, the yellow flags flying in the breeze, is when somebody disappears from church for a couple weeks. And you say, what's going on? Everything okay? And sometimes that's, well, really, in reality, that's one of the biggest, I would say, benefits of church membership. Every church, every member at Highlands Bible Church has a shepherd. It's their job to keep watch over the flock. And if one of their sheep goes missing for a couple weeks, they're going to go after them. And they're going to say, are you okay? What's going on? And sometimes, let's face it, we don't want to be found. We want to be left alone. Who wants to be found when they're like this? With David, they don't want to be found. Other times, our friends are the ones that are doing the pushing away. 
Why? David said it. We stink. We smell. We smell like sin. Who wants to be around that? You ever feel that distance? You have a friend that's caught in sin and you just, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with them. I don't want to be around them. Everything they say is like offensive to me. Unresolved sin literally makes us stink. Our friends and family smell it and they don't want to be around it. This all should work to bring conviction on it as part of God's plan. But our friends and our family also need to have the courage to do what? To get down in the stink and get after us. To get in the swamp and say, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Come back. Let's get out of here. It's such a powerful thing when someone does that. But while unresolved sin pushes our friends and family away, it has the opposite effect on our enemies. It draws them in. Why? Because everyone loves to see somebody go down in flames, don't they? Especially a world that hates God and has rejected God's law and hates God's church and hates God's word. And so when a pastor goes down in flames, you better believe they're going to zoom in. They're going to do exactly what David said. They're going to mock. They're going to rejoice. It's called Twitter. That's what happens when a pastor goes down. They, they mock. They rejoice. Yep, here goes another megachurch pastor convicted of sexual immorality. And then the comments start going. Church, we've got to remember this. We've got to remember, first of all, this just isn't pastors and elders, right? If you are a Christian, you have an enemy. You actually have a couple enemies. You have anyone who's opposed to God and therefore is opposed to you, but you also have Satan himself who is opposed to you, who would like nothing better for you to fall and go down in flames. In church, we've got to remember when we're professing believers and we get caught in sin, we're literally putting bullets in our enemy's gun. We're literally arming them to shoot back at us. And they're more than happy to pull the trigger. Our enemies are those who rail against God and his law, but also our enemy, of course, is Satan. We can hear that in David's plea. He says, God, please don't let them rejoice over me. That idea of a warrior who has fallen in battle, and then his, his opponent is on top of him, ready to kill him. David said, please don't let them rejoice over me. Don't let this happen. We are called to be faithful witnesses for Jesus, church, but we can lose a lot of ground for sin. We can lose a lot of ground in the battle because of sin. As elders, we spend a few minutes, we meet once a month in our main meeting, and as elders, we spend a few minutes every month in what we say is elder development. So we, we watch a video about eldering and practical things in it, and we talk about what it was, and how we can benefit from it. And last month, the video was on sin, and specifically the video was on sexual immorality. And it was tough to watch. It was tough to listen to because they went through like 25 consequences that could happen if an elder was caught in sexual immorality. You know, untold hurt to our spouses and church members who depend on us, unfathomable shame Loss of credibility of the gospel. Bringing shame on Highlands Bible Church. The list goes on and on and on to what? The delight of our enemies. 
They love to see that. Those opposed to a biblical worldview who live in rebellion against God's law and authority as king and Satan himself love it when Christians fall into sin. And every pastor or church leader or elder or Christian that falls in that sins, our enemies rejoice. Unresolved sin pushes our friends away and draws our enemies closer. So what do we do about it? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 21. It says this, David, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He says, where does David end up? He ends up face first before the only one who could possibly help him, his God, his Savior. David begs God with three petitions. He says, don't forsake me. Don't be far from me and hurry to help me. Is that the cry of a desperate soul or what? Look at, look at each one of these quickly. He says, first, don't forsake me, meaning don't abandon me. Don't give up on me. How dreadful it is to feel deserted by someone. Maybe we felt that a little bit. Sometime in our life, maybe we felt alone or abandoned. We know that we have sinned. We feel the effects and the conviction of it. And David says, please don't give up on me. He says, second, don't be far from me. He says, don't stay at a distance. He's like, I need you close. How dreadful is it when we feel that God is not near us? I think of a little kid, you know, that, that panic that happens when they don't see mom or dad. I can remember one or a couple times we'd be in crowds or something and, and one of the kids would lose sight of us, you know, and we'd be kind of hanging back and I don't know if you call it cruel or whatever, but we'd wait to see what happens, right? And, and undoubtedly they'd panic, right? They'd, you know, start looking around more and more frantically and they'd, you know, then we would zoom in before they got upset. I'm just saying it demonstrates that what David is saying, don't, don't be far from me. Be near me. And he says, third, hurry up. Hurry to help me. He says, God, you're the only one that can help me. Please, don't let this linger. Don't delay. The biblical reality is that in God's sovereignty, he allows the effects of sin to discipline us, but not to punish us. And therefore, he allows that trial in our life for only the amount of time that it is necessary to do what God is doing. And David is begging him. We are free to beg him to say, please, do your work quickly. Let this be over with quickly. That's what David is doing. He says, please, make haste. Please hurry. God gives us what we need and not a moment more than we needed it. And question, though, where does David ask that his pain be removed? Do we see this in this psalm at all? Do we see David asking for this to be removed? He doesn't. Calvin put it this way. David does not expressly ask that his afflictions should be removed, but only that God would moderate the severity of his chastisements. He trusts God. He trusts God's sovereignty. And he says, I know you're at work here. Please, please work in this situation. David begs him, please hurry, help me. Our psalm closes with the reality of throwing ourselves on the only one who can help, and that's God himself. David says, 
in the last few words of our psalm. He says, O Lord, my salvation. David knows the effects of sin. David knows that there's only one way to resolve them. And rather, there's only one person who can resolve this, and that is God himself. And so here's the big idea. Only God can resolve the effects of sin. Only God can resolve the effects of sin. How? God has done it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's already done the work for that. David looks forward to the work of Jesus Christ, right? He doesn't know his name is going to be Jesus. He knows there is the Messiah that's coming, right? And his trust is in him. We then, on this side of the cross, this New Testament church, this new covenant believers, right? We look backwards in the finished work of Jesus and the cross. Only God can resolve sin because God has already made the provision to resolve the effects of sin in Jesus Christ. Jesus, God the Son, he left the glories of heaven to come down to earth, this sin-soaked earth, out of his own free will and obedience to God the Father and his redemptive plan on a mission to do the work to resolve the consequences and the effects of sin. He lived perfectly, thus crediting the account with his righteousness. He died substitutionally, thus giving us the means to be forgiven and our sin to be resolved. And he rose victoriously, just sealing our new life in Christ. It's a picture of what happens in baptism. That's why next week there will be people that will enter the water and they will give testimony to the gospel itself and they will give testimony to how they came to understand that. And then we will, in obedience to what Jesus has told us to do, go under the water where we're united to death, death of Christ and death to our sin. We'll come up out of the water where we're washed with sin, the forgiveness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we will walk in newness of life, just like Christ walked out of the tomb alive. And that is the only resolution for sin. The effects of sin still have many purposes in the plans of God. The pain of sin should remind us of the consequences of sin. It should remind us of coming judgment. The effects of sin shake us out of our complacency and we need to listen to the Holy Spirit and we need to deal with it. If you're here today and you continue to crash time and time again into the effects of sin, this psalm, the Holy Spirit, and hopefully me, are telling you to deal with it. Only God can resolve the effects of sin. Unresolved sin affects us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. It pushes our friends away. It pushes our enemies closer. But ultimately, church, what should it do most? It should push us all closer to the cross. It should push us all closer to Jesus Christ. It should actually throw us, cast us face first where David is before the only one that can help us. And in that is a hope that goes beyond any sin, because any, goes beyond any circumstance. There's a very well-known quote from Spurgeon that goes like this. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And what he's saying there, rock of ages, of course, being 
God himself being Christ, right? Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to love that wave of whatever that is, that wave of conviction for sin, of consequences for sin, that wave of trial, of adversity, of anything else, of hardship. Why? Because it throws me where? Right into the mercy of the rock of ages. It's an unbelievable quote. Trials, adversity, suffering, the effects of sin, they have a wave that knocks us down. But the imagery here is so powerful, that tidal wave of these effects of sin that David has been giving us this morning should throw us, not against the rocks to cut us up and leave us for dead, but to throw us against the rock of ages, where is our only resolution for sin. And for that, church, we should rejoice. We should, when we find ourselves soaked and pummeled and dizzy from the effects of sin, lying face down in front of the only one that can help us, we should rejoice that God can and will help us because he has provided the resolution for sin. Let's pray that we can walk in this. Let's pray that God gives us eyes to see the sin that needs to be dealt with. Let's pray that that gives us courage to walk in repentance where we need to. And let's let's pray with thankfulness that God has done the work for us to have our sin resolved to have it forgiven and to be reconciled to the rock of ages. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for sustaining us, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray for those that are stuck in sin. Maybe there are those that have not confessed their sin once and for all and and come to you by faith and, and, Lord, called on you for salvation. There needs to be that time where we all realize that we are tired of being pummeled by the waves and being crushed by sin and being overwhelmed and come to you for that spiritual, permanent resolution. Lord, so I pray that if there's someone here that needs to do that, that they would do that. But Lord, for us, for the church, for believers, Father, when we feel the effects of sin, when we feel the effects of other people's sin that threaten to crush us, that threaten to undo us, God, would we be quick not to isolate ourselves, We'd be quick to run to you, to run to the cross, to run to the rock of ages. Father, as we care for one another here at Highlands Bible Church, would we be quick to brave that that foulness of sin that our brother or sister might be involved in and come and rescue them, restore them with a spirit of gentleness and speak words of life from the gospel of Jesus Christ and we pray for repentance and reconciliation. And Lord, ultimately... Let this all well up in gratitude for Jesus Christ, the one who is the only resolution for sin. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.